Welcome everyone to episode 48 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. Our guest today is Knox McCoy, an Enneagram 5, co-host of the wildly popular podcast, The Popcast, with Knox and Jamie, and he has recently authored the book, The Wondering Years, How Pop Culture Helped Me Answer Life's Biggest Questions. Knox, his wife Ashley, who is an Enneagram 4, and their three kids live in Birmingham, Alabama. Before we get to today's episode, first a little bit of plugola. Suzanne is coming to Long Beach, California, February 22nd and 23rd for the Anagram Know Your Number workshop. And then she will be in Austin, Texas on February 28th, March 1st, and March 2nd. The 28th is going to be an awesome, awesome panel and discussion on the Anagram and parenting with Suzanne and eight other parents consisting of all nine numbers. Tickets are only $10, and the proceeds from ticket sales go towards charities that support foster care and adoption. And then, very excited to be coming back to the Pacific Northwest, Portland, Oregon, March 15th, for the Path Between Us Anagram and Relationships Conference. As always, you can find all the information at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. So sign up, and we will see you soon. Now, enjoy the show. Knox McCoy, welcome to the Enneagram Journey. Thank you for having me. Good grief, I love your name. <laughs> you know, I uh, growing up in, uh, I grew up in Tennessee, and the thing, the, the question, I got two questions all the time. Um, are you the real McCoy? And like every time I got it, everyone thought that was the first time I'd ever heard it. So I got really oh, yeah. good at being like, oh, great joke, I'm not. And then the other one was, uh, "Are you from Knoxville?" And I and I wasn't either, but I was I was born really close to Knoxville. Well, I would have never thought to ask you either one of those things. I just like your name a lot. I appreciate that. So, the podcast with Knox and Jamie talks about all the things that I like to think about in terms of the Enneagram. Okay, good. Right, like I like to think about um, how the Enneagram fits what I'm hearing, what's happening why people do what they do. And I've done Enneagram work for so long, I can't hear things any other way anymore. Mm. I am trying to gather what I hear as I'm traveling or teaching or talking to people or in my family, which is big. I'm trying to hold things. And so I'm totally taken with the fact that you have a whiteboard obsession. (laughs) And it would be so easy for me as an Enneagram person to be dismissive about that, like, well, what a five thing to do. Mm. But I, um, I want to hear you talk about it for a little bit, and then I want to tell you how I'm going to use that in my teaching in the future. Okay, okay. To teach fives about how their brains work. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, so... Um, you know, so on our show, um, I've, I've talked about whiteboards a lot. Like I, I just have a, a huge affinity for whiteboards. And then, uh, the book I just wrote, the wonder years that came out in November, there's a pretty much a chapter devoted to it. And, you know, there's a really interesting, um, aspect of, let me, let me chase a rabbit for a second. Like I remember, um, cause I've been, you know, this is such a great honor for me and I've been such a huge fan of you and what you do for so long. I remember the moment, uh, where I got the route back to you. My wife, Ashley, had read it, and she was like, this book's incredible. you got to read it. We were on vacation, and our kids were swimming, and I was like, well, what is it? And she explained it, and I was like, ah, just, I think that's probably pretty silly, but I'll, I'll read it, fine. I just didn't think I could be captured in the pages of a book, you know? And then she said, I think I know what number you are, but you, you know, you read for yourself. And the moment I read about what it was to be a five, it was almost emotional because I thought... It wasn't that I thought I'm this great, uh, grandiose person. It was just I thought I'm a pretty internally weird person. And I'll be surprised if someone can capture that, you know? So when that happened, um, I was pretty over overwhelmed. And then, like, so, so that and you have given me a language to kind of look back on things I do and be like, that's not a weird thing. That's like, like the whiteboard thing. I'm like, oh, that's not weird. I mean, it might be for as many as I have, but it's like that makes total sense for how I see the world. And I, and I use it primarily as like there's a lot of thoughts always going on. And 
I want to capture them. So I have throughout my house just an assortment of, of surfaces. We were talking before we recorded. I've got a giant whiteboard here off camera. You can see a giant corkboard on camera. And there's just so many places that I need to hold thoughts because I don't want to lose them. Just not even that I think they're genius thoughts, but it's just I love I love thinking through things and I love putting a pin in them and then being able to come back to them. Me too. <laughs> Man, I'm all about it. I would love it sometime in uh, our future if we could exchange what I have hanging on the wall on Post-its and what you have on your whiteboards to see if they reflect our personalities. <laughs> I'd love to do that. I bet they do. I, b- <laughs> I bet you they do. So let me talk a minute about how fives think in my history of teaching fives. Mm-hmm. And then I'd love for you to speak into that for as long as you want to. Mm-hmm. Along with the fact that you have a measured amount of energy every day, so you can't be wasting it. Mm-hmm. And along with the reality that you're in the thinking triad, there's also a, a, a thing about the fact that all fives want to take in information. But when a day lasts too long, when the, like I teach for eight hours mm-hmm. at a time, and fives tell me that they need to go take a break. They need to go order all of that. Mm. And I'm convinced it's because you all intuitively and organically file information in your brain. And if it doesn't get filed, you can't retrieve it. Yes, 100%. That is, and I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way, but there's a, um, when there's too much, when there's too much of a streamline of information, I can... I can tell that I get a little frantic-y with like, I need a second to consolidate all this information and go through what, how I feel about it, but really just what I'm going to do with all of this. And if I don't get it, there's like a physical kind of reaction to it. That's interesting. Physical in that it's angst? Yeah, I think so. I think less like, you know, jittery, more um, unsettled, you know, like yeah. I feel like the heart rate is accelerating because I got to do something with this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to miss that. If I don't write that down, I'm going to miss it. But if I do write it down, I'm going to miss the next thing. Mm, yes, yes. Right? Because the way I watch TV is um, if if something interesting happened, I have to pause and either write it down or think about it. Or if someone's come in to talk to me, it's not a, you know, because you can do the passive aggressive thing where you pause and you stare at the person like, when are you going to be done so I can go back to enjoying this right. incredible right. television show? It's right. more like, I want... for that. <laughs> right? That's like viewing parties and stuff like that. I remember Lost was the worst. It, it really wasn't an aggressive act. It's like, this is, a, this is a dense show, and I need my full attention here. And I, and I love you too, Ashley, my wife, and I want to hear what you have to say, but I want to give both of you my full attention here. Yeah. That last little part's real helpful. I want to give both of you my full attention. How far <laughs> in right. did you learn that line? Uh, pretty, pretty early. Pretty early. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, so um, I like the, the idea that you talk about surfaces, too, because I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, so just correct me if I am, that they are on surfaces until you embody them, till you own them. Yes, yes, I would think so. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because I think fives have a lot of surface knowledge that's actually not satisfactory until it's embodied in some way or until they've put it in the right place. Yeah, well, you know, and I I think for me personally... um, you know, because you alluded to to what I do uh, from from my job, the podcast with Knox and Jamie, my business partner Jamie Golden and I, we we started a podcast in 2013, and going into it, um, my purpose for starting that was I want to write books, and if I can build a platform, I can write books. So um, that was my intent to go into it. She went in with a with a completely different set of expectations, but um, I thought I'm I'm familiar enough with pop culture, I can speak on this. I think I can speak on it creatively. So I can turn the act of watching a TV show or reading a book, I think I can turn that into content, right? So uh-huh. instead of just um, consuming it, I can do something positive with it. So that gave me a little bit of legitimacy. But even along the way, other things like learning, teaching myself how to edit, um, and turning that, turning the whole content production process into 
validity of like me, of myself, you know, especially because I hadn't really found a professional place for myself. That was unimaginably, unimaginably fulfilling for me at that point in my life. That's very interesting because all of that supports you needing to be in your head. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that uh, how often are you in the room with the person you're doing your podcast with? I think it has only happened, it happened last week for the first time. There you go. So, (laughs) so another real gift for you as a five is that you're doing the thing that you love to do without the distraction of it costing you more energy than you actually have to offer. That's exactly right. right. And I can, I can, I know there's a point where I can walk away or click the screen off and it's over and I get to be alone again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I have so much I want to talk to you about. I don't, I don't quite know exactly which direction I want to take, but I think I'll start with this. If you and I went to a bookstore, do you think you could walk through and pick out titles that you think are one Enneagram number or another? Ooh, uh, I don't know that I could. I think I could pick out for fives, but I don't know... I yeah. might have I might have a little bit of sense of my wife who's a four. Yeah. Um I might have a vibe on that, but other than that, I don't know that I could. Well, if I walked into a bookstore and I saw a book and the title was The Wondering Years, I would think a five wrote that book. <laughs> and I've gotten a lot of feedback from a fellow fives who have said this is the most Enneagram five book I've ever read. And and the funny part is I think a lot of it. Um, like I said earlier, it it wasn't, it was that thing of like not being aware of something, but then now in retrospect, being hyper aware of how close I was to understanding why I was doing that. And I arrived there, um, very clunkily and independently, but now I can see the connective tissue of that. My mom was a five. My best friend is a five and she's been my best friend since I was 18. Wow. So I got a lot of five uh, energy around me and there are people from all of my life for whom I have an, an extraordinary amount of affection who are fives. And yet your number is so different from mine. <laughs> Cause so do you, with your best friend, did you lead that interaction, that relationship? Did you reach out? Because I've found in all of my best, biggest lifelong relationships, it's been the other person kind of bringing me out. And once you've brought me out, like you're stuck with me forever, but I do need that help to come out first. Yeah. Yeah. She's 10 years older than I am, um, which made that piece a little more challenging, but Mm -hmm. the answer is yes. I had to go get her. Okay. And it was worth it. (laughs) And as a child, I had to go get my mom and I had to go get affection and I had to go get her and it was worth it. And one of the things that I want people to know about fives is that the fact that you have to kind of go after them, that, that doesn't really mean much. It just has to do with energy and with how they see the world. It doesn't mean they don't want you to come get them. But it does mean, I think, that the boundary that you read in approaching a five is the necessary boundary for them to be able to be in relationship with you. That's completely correct. And I, I, I remember I remember being in community groups with our church and they'd always do the thing of like, you know, talk about your story, introduce yourself. And I'd always I made it a part of my little spiel was like, I know I come off like a butthead, but I'm not. But I know I come off like that. And I do apologize for that. And it's not an intentional thing. It's it's um, like you said, I think it's just a really necessary boundary. But I'm I'm interested in your mom because as a five parent, I'm really sort of, you know, we have three kids, 10, seven, and four. And I, you know, I've heard you talk about how, um, you can, people can lean on the Enneagram and kind of, I don't know, gloss over or hit the surface on what someone is to, to their detriment. And I'm haunted by the idea that I'm this going to be this inaccessible parent and I don't want to be, but then I've got this other aspect of, and I'm interested to hear what you think is um, my father was a, is a three, um, big time achiever. And I feel like I had some, uh, initial, I don't know, friction with, with diagnosing myself because 
I feel like he and I have a really great relationship and he's a huge influence on me. So I feel like I, I is there is there a point to which a really strong parental figure, their number and like how that shapes their world, that can inform like a different kind of sense of who you are with, within your number? Is that Does that even function as a question that I asked? I don't know if that actually landed. Yeah, it landed. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say a lot of things to answer it. First okay. thing is your Enneagram number is determined by genetic predisposition. Okay. So whatever happens environmentally affects the number that you already are because when you arrive on the planet, you're already that number. Okay. So that's part one. Part two is that um, there are certain numbers that have a bigger effect on their children than other numbers based on behavior, but your Enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. Hmm. So an example would be that if your dad is a three on the Enneagram and you're close to him, then you probably participated in more things than you wanted to to get his approval because he probably had no understanding of your limited amount of energy every day. Hmm. And, you know, five energy, you wake up with the same amount every day Mm -hmm. and you can't get any extra. So you have to manage it to make it through the day because you don't get any more till the next day. Right. And you can't save up from the day before. So you just have this pocket and you got to keep paying out of that one pocket. And once there's nothing left, there's nothing left. Right. And, and you know, he, uh, I had, I had such a great childhood and I have great relationship with my parents to the point where at some points I'm like, I wish you guys would have screwed up a little more because as a writer, like I, I just need some more material and you haven't right. really given me enough. Right. So <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of it is because I was never pushed um, adversely against my will to do things. Sure. But I think a lot of it was like growing up and seeing him and watching him yeah. and thinking that's that's the model. I want to do that. And sure. then trying to achieve, but then coming up um, short you know, and just because of my predisposition, because of how, you know, my, my energy level or whatever, and then being like, what's, what's wrong with me? Even, you know, as a, as a man now with a family, there are parts of myself that I really lament and I can't square with like, I know that's my personality type, but I, I want to be different. I want to be like that. I want to fit that template that was set before me. Yeah. What? Well, you're going to create your own template and it's going to be great because you're asking the question. And you're not going to be an unavailable dad because you're asking the questions. Mm. So I'll just tell you, I, I don't know you very well, but I'm not at all worried about you parenting well. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just we'll tell my kids that in therapy, like in 15, 20 years and be like, well, you know, deal with it. I'm sorry. I was a great parent. Well, you know, I, I tell everybody I think they need a therapist. So I'm, I'm, all, I'm pro-therapy. I have not been ever... Um, it is something I want to do not because I, you know, I think a lot of my get up is, or my, my problem with it is I don't feel like I've earned therapy, you know, and I know that's dumb. Um, but I, I think it's overcoming, like growing up with a certain idea of, you know, a a kid from eighties, nineties in the South, mental health is a, is an idea, is a concept. It's not a real thing. And I know that's faulty. Um, but it's something I want to pursue and I'm getting over the, you don't have to have like a huge issue that you're dealing with. It's just really good to talk things out. I think mostly they cover issues that aren't huge in therapy anyway. That's my take. Mm. That's absolutely right. I, I go to therapy to make my life more manageable and to not make relationship mistakes. Mm. So when I feel like I'm about to, get whipped up about something that could be just not as big a deal as I think it is, then I go talk that out there so I don't put it on my husband and my kids. Mm. And I'm sorry that your parents didn't give you enough to write about, but I guarantee you your children will, so you're going to do fine. <laughs> well, that, actually leads to, that leads to a question that I have. You, you said that you didn't feel pushed to do things that you didn't want to do uh, in childhood. I'm curious though, now that you're on the other end, are the end, so you have three children, your work, your book, your wife, and you're a five. Are there things now though that you do have to do that you kind of don't want to do? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think my parents were really good at, um, 
you know, if I started something, I had to finish and they made me do hard things. Um, that was really one of which is like a pivot point in my life. And in the moment it was, it was going from uh, changing schools, uh, before high school. And in the moment I was like, you guys are the worst. I can't believe you're making me do this. But I know, and, but in the moment I trusted them and in retrospect, it was the greatest thing to ever happen to me. So they were really good about, um, making me do things I did, you know, like, um, making me grind out things I didn't want to because later as a man, as a husband, you have to do that. As an adult, whoever you are, you have to do those things. But I I think a lot of it now is, um, it's not necessarily that I'm doing things I don't want to do. It's, um, I'm, I'm very limited because I have to, I have to care for these people. I have to be super available. I want to be super available for these people. I want to be great at what I do. And then there's not really a lot left. And I lament right, not, not having relationships, like I'm not having the energy to pursue relationships because it just doesn't seem like I have anything to give there, you know? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Not in a do things I don't want to do because it's a beating, but because right. my my body or my mind or my energy, whatever it may be, uh, it, it isn't as up for it as my idea of what I would like to be. Mm, yes, yes, 100%. Well, it's interesting to me that you two share a line on the Enneagram. And one of the things that I want to talk about, because I have both of you here as a five and a seven, is that actually, um, you know, I, I preach hard that the Enneagram, when understood, only helps you. Mm. It, it is a positive gift. And the deeper you go, the bigger the gift. Mm. And as a five, you go to seven in stress. Right. And so because of that goodness in this mystical wisdom that we're all kind of taken with, it means that when you move the year before high school, it's so stressful. You arrive at the new place in seven space (laughs) with a lot of seven gifts. And my teaching is you can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. Mm. And so as a five in stress going to seven, that helps you take care of yourself in a new environment and a new move and a new place. Yes. And, you know, honestly, I think even more than that is right now um, with what we do uh, on the podcast, um, because there's an aspect of, you know, stress every week when I'm performing for the show because I want to deliver really great content. But the biggest part and... um, with the, the biggest part of what we do and the hardest part are our live events when we're on stage and my partner's a seven. So she's just at a live event. She's a force of nature. She can walk in, into a room and, and just go. And for me, it is like worst case scenario, you know, but, but I feel it's, it's probably when I'm the most stressed of anything I do um, just because it's not what I'm really good at. So I have to be hyper prepared and hyper aware and hyper on, for those moments, but I think um, there's such a benefit, I guess, in pushing. I well, sometimes I get, um, sometimes I don't love aspects of five. I don't love, or maybe the cliche aspects of the five of like we're grumpy recluses because I don't truly feel like in my heart I am. So I I like those moments where I cannot be that, where I can really take that on and be that seven. Um, and I know there's probably a, a, a tax to pay at the end of that, you know, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy getting to have to be something that I'm really not in that moment. Well, just for a point of reference to tether you a little differently, perhaps I've been teaching for 25 years and I've used all kinds of words, but I've never referred to a five as a grumpy. (laughs) What did you say? Recluse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Never, never. So I I don't think you're you're perceived that way in that respect. I appreciate that. There you go. There you go. Okay, I want to do something that, that would be fun for me. I hope it'll be fun for you. Of course. Um, I'd like for you to uh, share with me something that's happening right now in the culture that as a five you find very interesting and something that's happening in the culture right now that you find ridiculous. Mm, this is a great question. So... I think the interesting part is, I, okay, so the interesting part, I think, is the revelation of people in power abusing that power. 
and they are getting um, called out and a light shined on them, right? That's, I think that's really interesting. But then you have this spectrum of offenses of what they've done. Some are terrible. Some are arguably misunderstandings. Who knows? And then you have this middle ground of trying to understand what is the what is the appropriate consequence? What is the appropriate reception? And it feels like you have all these definitive things of like, yes, abuse of power happened. Um, yes, this was um, brought to justice. But then we're all in this space of not knowing what to do. And that's so strange. And I've I've found myself getting in loops about it of like, you try to go back to something objective, but there's so much nuance there to apply that you just... You can't. And then culturally, you're having this huge, loud conversation. So it's just impossible to have like a really um, simplified, nuanced conversation about what's going on. It's it's um, vexing, but also fascinating. And I hate to use those words about something like really serious, like, you know, the Me Too movement or, or people abusing power. But um, it's this thing I'm having a really hard time getting my mind wrapped around. It's really interesting that you said that because in terms of an Enneagram perspective, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that aggressive numbers are seemingly energized and somewhat empowered by abuse of power. And withdrawing numbers, independent numbers, are not only mystified, but I think we have a tendency to feel helpless. Mm, I can see that because there's definitely a feeling of that, of like pursuing an understanding, but then at some point just being like, I can't. And like feeling like hopeless, like how is anyone ever going to have understanding about this? What is to be done here? Right. So are you aware that your number is the only one that's capable of neutrality? I, to say, am I aware of it is an understatement. I probably celebrate it too much. And if you ask my wife, she would be like, yeah, I've heard that once or 10 million times. Yeah, so so I, you just yeah. Switzerland all the time? <laughs> Pretty much, yes. What do you think the gift to all of us would be from fives in relationship to neutrality and other things in managing all of this angst, uh, anxiety and anger that's kind of free falling everywhere. You know, I think, and this, this was a, this was an undercurrent, um, in my book that I, I didn't realize was there until I, I was, I was writing it. Um, I love, you know, like, so, so we do the show called the Bible binge and uh, it's about having a conversation about Bible stories in a very casual way, not to disrespect the stories, but primarily because Jamie and I, we don't feel capable of having like the scholarly conversations. Right. So we want to be able to have a conversation for people who aren't, you know, uh, seminary students or whatever. Um, which is, which is everyone. I mean. Right. The, but it doesn't feel like that. Right. Cause like, right. cause I, I mean, even before this, I thought, should I like just go in a hole for two weeks and like try to master the Enneagram so I can feel competent enough to have this conversation. And I know that's silly to try to do, but, um, there's that idea of like, I don't have mastery over the subject, so I don't want to talk about it. And especially with something as fraught as the Bible. So what we're able to do on that show is create a very neutral ground of like, there's no one's going to yell at you. No one's going to judge you. You won't go to hell. Let's just hear the conversation. Let's just hear the story. And I think that's the gift, the, the value of strip away all the emotions and the implications and the, I know you've, you've heard this since you were seven years old at church, just strip that away and just hear the story. Because the bet is that the story is rich enough and beautiful enough that it will overcome any guilt or shame that you have for even questioning like what's going on here. I think that's such a phenomenal uh, use of like a high side or growth side of fives. You said you were talking about, you know, I don't have mastery of the subject, so I don't want to talk about it. And that seems like the, the five response for things. Mm -hmm. It's always such a bummer when in our family we're doing something or with, with my friends and then the, the five will come back next time we're together with their input on the conversation with, for me as a seven, I, I don't want to talk about again. That was a month ago, <laughs> right. the conversation we had, right. We got a conversation today that I'd like for you to jump in. You know, there's no mastery of it for me and I have no problem with that or for Jamie. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that is, um, I mean, that's great. And that's where you and Jamie really compliment each other. I can imagine in those scenarios. 
And and I, and I think to even go further on those Bible binge episodes, we have our our third kind of partner. Uh, she's the Bible scholar, and she comes back because we were re- we're really worried about we're we're not worried sensitive to not. Um, being sacrilegious, but not being flippant about Bible things because we're having this conversation. So she comes in at the end, and she's a three achiever, so she does an incredible job, and she will rebuke Y'all us. you got She'll, the Rosefield perfectly for this. <laughs> and, and you know, I wish I, I wish we would have been, I wish I could say we were intentional about that, but we just like, we looked up and we we're like, oh wow, like this works really well. This actually really vibes well together. I think that it's the, it was divine intervention to to put that in order, but, but it allows us to do what we want to do, and it saves us like it saves the the integrity of the show to say yes those dummies said that thing and they are being called to the carpet for that and that's okay we're all on the same page here yeah you know i i think too in a a culture of sound bites uh mastery matters i think discussion where there is no mastery is the way that you are interested enough to find out more Mm-hmm. So I'm certainly not suggesting that only people who know about a thing should talk about a thing. But, you know, I've been teaching for 25 years, and the Enneagram is really hot right now. <laughs> That's right. But I waited a lot of years, right? And right. there's a lot of misinformation in the world about the Enneagram. And I've had to kind of uh, breathe through that. You know, I just kind of have to breathe through, it's okay. It's, it's all okay. And I think in the end of a discussion, of an evening, of a month, of a year, of a topic, I think truth rises to the top. Mm -hmm. So what is the truth of the Enneagram that offers you comfort? Hmm. I think think a lot of it is... And I think a lot of it's in what you said, like you're born with this. This is who you are. And, you know, growing up, th- and this is this is primarily, you know, the first half of my book, growing up, seeing the world a certain way and not ever, you know, I would like I was enchanted by. So I, so I grew up in the southeast, uh, Southern Baptist Christianity, like the whole thing. I was enchanted by faith, but then I was also um put off by it because there were the Old Testament God wasn't really uh, presented with any nuance. So I was like, I'm supposed to trust this guy, but I'm scared to death of him. So that was, that was a thing. And I, I was aware that I saw the world differently. No one ever said, you're, you're not doing this right. But I knew I could tell I'm not like the other people are. And knowing now that that wasn't a failure or a quirk or anything other than that's just who I am. Like there's so much freedom in that. And especially at a moment, I think, you know, and, and, I, and I talk about this in the book, I think we all arrive at a point where we have to re-reconcile what we believe. There um, you go. And for some people, it takes a lot longer. Like for me, it was, you know, the last few years. And there, you can see, it's a really moving moment to see like the fingerprints of where you needed your Enneagram, where like that was, that was how you needed to continue and proceed. And that was so much of my story of that's not a bad thing. Or I didn't make, um, I didn't turn like something bad into something good. It was just always supposed to be like that. And that's, there's a lot of freedom in, in realizing that. Mm-hmm. Would it have been so great when you were a kid and all that circumstance around scripture and God and church if somebody had been able to say to you, it's kind of hard to make all this line up, isn't it? I just wanted just one allusion to that. Just one person to wink at me and be like, dinosaurs in the Old Testament, right? What's that mean? Yeah. What's that about? Like, yeah. I just needed someone, you know, and I never and I never got that. And that's not a failure of anybody. I think that was cultural, but um, it was that not not getting the eye roll when you're asking yet another question about a thing that's probably not on the sun, Sunday school lesson topic, yeah, but it's yeah. just, it's, it's killing you inside that no one's asking this question because, yeah. you know, it's so important to you in that moment. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because when I was growing up in the church, uh, in Texas, uh, in a Methodist church, which is completely different from your experience. <laughs> um, and I was always as a two on the Enneagram, just taken with relationships. 
like I, I struggled the most with, you mean like Jesus would just walk up and say, get your stuff and come with me. And all these guys just left their families and left their kids and just said, okay, I'm coming. Mm. That that's where they would lose me. Yeah. Because, because you thought, how could they just leave like that? Yeah. What, mm. Aren't you supposed to bring your wife and kids? Right. And when are you coming home? <laughs> right. right. And do you still love me? And <laughs> what were we doing here? And I, um, I think we approach probably, well, for sure everything. But I think as children, we approach church and scripture based on what's most important to us. Mm-hmm. And I think Sunday school lessons are written almost always if they're, you know, standard handout, you order it from the home office mm-hmm. material, written from the perspective of only the person who wrote it. Right. Which l- loses lots of little kiddos, right? There's so much rigidity with that. Yeah. Yeah. It can really yeah. fly off pretty hard. Well, if as a five you think it was rigid, can you imagine as a seven how Joel felt? <laughs> And I unless they got that into the first five minutes of the sermon, I didn't quite catch it. <laughs> it just went on over the, it, which oh, yeah. there might be some grace in that. That might've been a good thing. But I, but I remember, you know, like just, it's, I don't know the scripture, but it was the story of the guy who had to bury his father, who wanted to bury his father first. And Jesus was like, no, like you got to come now. Yeah. And that, that I, like, I'm not criticizing the scripture as a kid. I thought, but like, it's his dad, like why can't he just bury his dad? What is that's not a commentary on his faith? I didn't think that's just he lost his dad, you know. And I know there's a bigger story, but as a kid, that was never explained to me, and it was never that was explained by to me. Seven, you know, oh, it's clearly. time to move on. It's yeah, like no yeah. pain. Let's just go. Let's yeah. just keep going. Move, Listen, move, move. He's dead. He's not coming back. But we got another thing going on over here. <laughs> that's so. right. That's right. But I remember listening to stories about Thomas. And how he w- he doubted, and it, it was always painted as like, God, Thomas, can you believe? It was like Judas, and then pretty much right there's Thomas too. Yeah. And yeah. I remember thinking like, is he, is it because he's doubting, or is it just asking a question? Like, yeah. what's the difference there? And and are both really really bad? I guess it's motivation that probably makes sense. Why are you doubting? But if it's just to understand better, I don't know that that I think that's a bad thing. You know, as a kid. You know, I um. I always found it interesting that uh, everybody was hiding when Thomas was with Jesus. It's like, that's pretty good. That's a good part right there. <laughs> right? Where, where's everybody else? They're hiding. That's a highlight. <laughs> I think that goes in the highlight reel for, yeah, exactly. for fives and Thomas. Exactly. Okay, and now what what's happening in the culture from your five perspective that you think is ridiculous? Hmm, I think, well, I don't, I don't know that I think it's necessarily ridiculous but it is um, both a thing to like corral and contend with um, is, is like the social, it's social media, you know, and, yeah. it, and it's something that I'm, I'm understandably horrific at, but it is the, it's the streamlining of language, streamlining of understanding. It's a thing I have to do. And I, and there is so much value in it. Like my business was built on social media. That's how I met my business partner. That's how I pay my bills, you know? So I don't want to like feel like the old guy yelling at social media to get off his lawn. But, um, there is such a, there's such a volatile, sometimes hateful aspect that we default to on social media that I can't, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is reconcilable or if that's just like, that's just the tax we pay for the connectivity that we have on social media. I don't know. I started a study a few months ago and I've been asking questions about social media. And um, the number actually that I'm the most uh, interested in hearing from regarding social media is fives. Hmm. Do you think uh, paying attention to and connecting to social media costs you energy? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It, uh, both in good and bad. It, it, it gives me access to so much information that I otherwise wouldn't get. So that's great. Um, and it's a, it's a shorthand cheat for connectivity, you know, because I don't Mm -hmm. really have to engage with you. I can just tweet at you or I can Instagram comment or whatever. And that counts technically in my head, but, um, the hard stuff, the criticisms, the pointed bad reviews of your book, like, that's almost a compounding energy suck away from like it, it just sticks with you it, or it sticks with me in that respect. 
In terms of bad reviews of your book, do you um, take those to heart or do you think they require thinking and understanding? Both. Um, luckily, well, I'll say this. I, I don't, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe this is it. I'm thinking on the fly here. I think when it comes to the book, maybe I just like a portal to, to a seven and I'm like, I just don't want to know the reviews. I'm going to hope they're great. Maybe they're not. I, I think they're good. Last I checked accidentally, they were good. So let's just leave it there. Let's never there go back go. and let's just always assume that they're fine. That they're good. Because, uh, Otherwise, I don't know how I'd function with that. Well, let me tell you why I asked you. I don't know how much work you've done. I don't know if you've done stance work with the Enneagram. And if you haven't, boy, I'd love to teach you about that sometime because you would love it. (laughs) But triads are determined by which is dominant, thinking, feeling, or doing. Stances are determined by which of the three is repressed. Okay. And you are in the withdrawing stance, which is doing repressed. Okay. So that means you like to plan to do, and you do the things that you have to do. But you also uh, have a lot of plans you didn't complete and a lot of projects you were going to do that you didn't get done because gathering information and looking into it and planning it is part of the thing for you, right? Yes. One of the things that I teach about fives is that because doing is repressed in that way, doesn't mean you don't do anything. That means that since you're thinking dominant, you have feelings about what you think. And that means when people reject what you think, it hurts your feelings. Mm, yes. And I, and I think, I don't, tell me, if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think I'm a five wing four. Right. And that, that feels very much like when I get into a um, emotional crisis, you know, mm-hmm. we, like we moved recently, um, Ashley and I had lived in Tennessee our whole lives. We moved to Birmingham in June. And there's there's a lot going on there with, with kids and with ourselves and with family and just newness and all that stuff. And when I get into emotional crisis, I can find myself, you know, there's a, there's a Brad Pitt movie called Bunnyball, which is about the um, conflict between in, in Major League Baseball between analytics and data versus like scouts with just gut instincts. Great. And that's how it feels like for me. I've got the scout who's just like, he's going to be an all-star. I just feel it in my bones. And then the one who's like, no, this spreadsheet proves he's going to be an all-star. And when I get in that crisis, it's like there's no resolution. It's just one rejecting the other, rejecting the other. And I, I almost have to just go to sleep because I can't, I can't reconcile what's going Because my feelings seem so... I have a tendency to reject feelings as just silly almost, you know, but when I'm feeling them, I can't help but not recognize them. But then foundationally, I'm like, but that's dumb. You're dumb for feeling that these don't make sense to you, you know? Okay. Um, I would say that because a four with a five wing or a five with a four wing, that's the place on the Enneagram where um, you combine head and heart. And it's very compelling, (laughs) very compelling place. So Thomas Merton was a four on the Enneagram. And once the five wing added into his life, he was always combining head and heart. So that made him so compelling that he's published in every known language on the globe. Mm. So may you be, Knox McCoy, (laughs) published in every known language on the globe. From your lips to God's ears, please. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Sometimes for numbers like mine, I have to really make sure that there's some thinking in there because I'm just feeling and doing and feeling Mm. and doing and doing Mm -hmm. and feeling and having feelings about what I do, right? Sure. And so I think one of the greatest things that happens in Enneagram work is when we learn to bring up uh, where we're repressed, the center Mm. that we're not using quite enough and haven't used well since childhood. And for you as a five, you talked early on about having three kids. And now that I know you've just moved, and I know that right now they probably have more needs than they ever have in your life with them. Correct. Yes. And so I, I, I just want to put an encouraging word on the table for you that I think when children go through a hard time, they need reason. Hmm. And fives are reasonable, if nothing else. You, 
you bring reason to the table. And most people add feelings. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all lacking reason, mm. which is one of the reasons I'm glad you're speaking into the culture because from my perspective, and granted I'm older than you, but from my perspective, people are being unreasonable. Mm, yes. From the top down, people are being unreasonable. Yes. And I don't know how we're going to get reason back in a culture that is struggling to boundary itself in any way. You know, it, and it, I completely agree with you. And I don't know. The best thing I can think of is to, and not that we're trying to do this with our shows, but we, you know, our shows are inherently not very serious. I think we drive through humor and then we try to, because we've earned your attention and hopefully like your respect through, we make you laugh. We can say things that you will entertain then. It seems like to, to achieve reasonability, to achieve some kind of connection to people, it's almost like you have to build out a platform or a reputation of, you trust me. I'm not just someone randomly speaking to you, so now you can hear what I have to say and you have to cloak it. And, and it's such a it's such a fraught time of like there's so, so much thought has to go into what you say and why you say it and, and who the people are who are receiving it. And, I, and, and, and maybe that's more of my concern about social media. It just feeds into that and it accelerates that process. And it, it's troubling. Like it's, it's really troubling. But I, but I appreciate that word because I, I think fortunately, you know, Ashley's, Ashley's a four and she's all, we met when we were, I mean, we met when we were kids, but I think we started dating when we were 16. And yeah. she's always been that. I think we've always had such a great relationship because she has brought out the feelings that were in there, but I didn't really know how to get them out. So she's always heightened those within me. And even with our kids, she can um, access and like and 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 connect with them for their feelings. And then we can both kind of try to reason and try to bring out, anchor that stuff that they're feeling with some kind of reasonability. When you know that's good enough, right? Like you know, mm-hmm. you don't need you, you you don't need to both be the same. You don't need to both be bringing the same thing to the table. Thankfully, right. So Richard Rohr, who's my mentor, um, one of them, says that opinions are underdeveloped thinking. <laughs> I thought I you might that. like that. That's beautiful. Yeah, I thought you would. <laughs> and that's, that's kind would. of what I traffic in. So I, I hear that uh, both as a criticism and a reality of my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as a, I'm gathering, you're an extrovert. I've never, I mean, you tell me, I've never thought that. I've always kind of identified as an introvert. I think the, and this this might be a primitive understanding, the, the thing I thought was you get energy from um, solitude or you get energy from being with people. Is that true? Is that a, a correct definition? Well, it's a definition. I think there okay. are others. Okay. So let me let me do a different thing then. I think you're a social five. You know okay. anything about Enneagram subtypes yet? Probably enough to get me in trouble, so I'll say no. Yeah. Okay, well, you need to listen to my recording on subtypes. Okay. Because okay. a lot of what you're dealing with in terms of what's happening in the culture has to do in my world with subtypes, as much with subtypes as it has to do with number. So within each Enneagram number, there are three instinctual variants. One is social, one is sexual, and one is self-preserving. Okay. And unfortunately, that uh, requires some pretty significant Enneagram work. And when used lightly, it's almost 100% of the time used inappropriately. Okay. Social essentially refers to one with many. Sexual is one-on-one. And self-preserving, of course, is about self-care. Okay. And the assumption is that fives are self-preserving. Well, that's just a bad assumption. Mm. Some fives are sexual, some are social, and some are self-preserving. And my guess is that you're a social five. Okay. Which defined my me in, in relationship with you would mean that in order to do what you're put here to do, you're really good at what you do. So you, that has to be a part of why you're here and what's yours to do. And in order to do that, you have to do life one with many. Mm. So the fact that you do it uh, on stage at times live and on your podcast on a screen with somebody means that you have intuitively learned uh, 
how to manage fiveness, because you can occasionally be a social, because you're social, you can do well one with many as long as you don't have to do it all the time. I completely agree with that, yes. And as a social five, as you look at cultural things, fiveness will always be dominant. But the social component, it, you know, it's like that's another place where you're looking for balance. In the Enneagram mm-hmm. world, you're always looking for balance. And so mm-hmm. we all want to balance social, sexual, and self-preserving like the layers of a cake. Mm-hmm. And none of us do. You know, anytime <laughs> somebody raises their hand and says, oh, yeah, I've got that done, I think, oh. <laughs> No, actually you don't. But. <laughs> <laughs> so as a social five looking at, at pop culture or at cultural events, that's an unusual mix. How come? There aren't many social dominant fives. So you're unique in that. Okay. Lots of fives hold to their own sense of what's mm. right and wrong and good and bad and how things should be. And cultural, social fives in terms of cultural events are, are intrigued by the different ways that people respond. Yes, yes. And it's the intrigue that makes you, I, in my opinion, that makes me think that you're good at what you do. And so the reason I'm trying to keep you kind of in a conversation for my listeners about how you're responding to the culture is because I think we all need to respond more reasonably. Mm, mm. And it's, it's, I, I think that I, that was always, growing up, that was always a feeling of, like, even pursuing, even, like, if I took an intro to religion class, there was a part of me that was like, what are you doing? Like you, you're, you're dancing with the devil here, like go back. But, but there was such a strong part of me. Like, I want to understand, I want to pursue some kind of, some, some kind of knowledge, some kind of understanding of how the other people in my world work. Like, I feel like that doesn't seem unreasonable. That seems like almost necessary. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to um, create art or projects with not just white people? Why wouldn't you want to represent everybody and get everybody's story? That just seems, I know I'm not breaking new ground. That, that's always been what, what drives me and, and, and what frustrates me a little bit, that we have to go through several different filters of personal politics, personal religion, personal worldview to get to that uh, point with people. So I'm going to come back to the word uh, ridiculous, which I used mm-hmm. with you earlier. The need for fives is to perceive, and perceive means to fully understand. And we have a a cultural lack of desire to fully understand what's happening for whatever reason. So we are limiting our responses to either I'm for it or I'm against it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you as a five struggle with there not being more room to stand than for or against positive or negative? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, knowing that, knowing that you can't just reduce someone down to like a for or against, it's frustrating that there's not more room to have that conversation that, um, um, feathers out why people believe or, what they've experienced to inform that belief. I think a lot of it honestly is we're so bombarded with stuff. It's paralyzing to, you just don't, you, you, you're inundated with stuff. So you, you don't have the time or the opportunity. And I feel that like when I'm trying to learn, you know, every, every year I start the year out, I put down five things I want to learn about that. Like yeah. I don't really have an understanding and I'm told that's like hyper Enneagram five stuff. And it is, but it's like, if I don't, I'm not going to have time. I'm not going to make time to learn anything new. And I, I have to learn new things. Like it just fuels me. So I want to set aside and build my calendar out to where I'm reading about this specific thing. Otherwise, there's just so much going on that I'm just going to be re- refreshing social media feeds and not be any it, better for anything. Exactly. Exactly. So you willing to tell me two of the five for 2019? Two of the five for 2019. Um, let's see. One is, um, 
uh, this guy named uh, Mansa, Mansa Musa. He was uh, kind of like a sultan in Africa, and he's thought to be, um, he lived, I, w- I want to say like the 1400s, Middle Ages, thought to be the wealthiest man to ever live. Like so much wealth that no one can describe how much money he had. He would travel and disrupt like Egyptian economies because he had so much gold. And I think that's just fascinating, and I've never heard of this person. And then um, uh, Genghis Khan. I'm really interested in Genghis Khan. Interesting. That's very interesting to me. <laughs> Anybody uh, that is alive? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Actually, no. Not too, not too interested in living folk. No, I, I'm not a fan. Not, not too big of a fan right now of the living. Let's go to the dead. <laughs> that that story's been told, and I feel like there's no. There's no no revelations will come out that I haven't seen coming about the person. There you go. Right? There you go. <laughs> what do you wish people knew about fives? Um, let's see. I think, I think that, I think when we're over, ex- oh, let me let me say this: if we're if we're there, if we're with you, um, it's probably not begrudgingly. It's because we want to be there, and like we're we're choosing to be here. And probably we're bringing our A game, you know? And I think, you know, when we do live show events, uh, we'll perform and then we'll meet people after and people will say, like, I know this is miserable. And I feel really bad that I've created that impression because it's actually incredible to get to meet people and connect. Um, and, and, I, and I feel I feel guilty sometimes that I've created the impression that if we're talking, like, it's the worst thing to happen to me because it's not. Um, so if, if, they're, if we're there, like treat it like a compliment because we want to be there. And I think the other thing is when we are tapped out or overextended or, or overcommitted, um, it's not like it truly is. We're, we're completely destabilized. We're just not, we're like a, like a baby horse trying to walk and it's just, things don't work anymore. So it's yeah. gotta, we gotta go somewhere else, not because of you, but because of us, because it's just what we're wanting to happen is not quite happening yet. That's so good. If you had a big platform for five minutes to speak into our world, not mm-hmm. the entire world, but mm-hmm. our world right now, uh, what would you talk about? What do you mean when you say our world specifically? Our culture, Western okay. culture. Gotcha, Western culture. Oh, man. I would say, I would say talk less, like listen more, you know? Because I think we have, we've gotten this bad cycle of, and maybe not even that, maybe, maybe it's more talk to someone you disagree with and try to understand it. Because I think we've, we've created this narrative that if you disagree with me, you're a monster. Um, and I, in most of my experiences, everyone ha- has arrived at where they've arrived for a specific set of reasons and experiences and it's not because they are the devil. Um, it's because like that's their worldview and that's why they've gotten there. And I think if we can start to understand people and ourselves and why we've, I think, it, man, you know what? Maybe we just got to understand ourselves first. I think a lot of us don't really understand why we are doing what we are doing and where that impulse originated from. So I think if we can do that, that's a big thing, first of all. And then if we can start to to bridge the gap a little bit and have a conversation with someone who doesn't, believe like we believe man like that's how we can change the world right there i couldn't agree more one of the things that i just wrote down yesterday that i have on a post-it hanging on my wall that i'm going to (laughs) work with is this ideas have become impersonal but we're talking about them personally Mm, that's so that's so true we've become a culture of we take everything personally right and And we're we're talking about ideas that we haven't even thought about yeah yeah Hey, can we do this again sometime? Please. I would love to. This was, I would love to, too. Listen, this was, I told Ashley, I was like, I'm afraid she's going to carve me up like a turkey emotionally and just serve me up. And I think you did, but you did it very gently, so I appreciate that. Oh. Well, Ashley, as a four, is just waiting for that then. She's like, <laughs> yeah. come to me. That's Here's right. What I she's want like, you that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, let me sit with you in that. You, you two stop it. You tell Ashley that I'll do even better next time and you won't even know. <laughs> Silent assassin. I think that'd be great. That'd be great. All right. Um, 
again. We'll do it again. And I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is such an honor. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthaug. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.